Let's turn to Haggai chapter two, if you would, at this time. Haggai chapter two. Now, Haggai the prophet, uh, we're gonna find out that he was a prophet during the time of the rebuilding of the temple. Um, And uh, there's kind of a thing, we need to do a little bit of review perhaps uh, to make sure that we're all on the same page because there's an interesting history, at least I think it's interesting, I hope hope you do too, but um, as it turns out, the temples of Jerusalem do matter even to you Gentiles from Portland. Um, And there's stories and there's lessons to be learned uh, from the story of the temple and what have you. Um, But the history of the temple, um, let me just give you a quick uh, summary. It all kind of started there when the children of Israel left Egypt as slaves um, and they were wilderness wandering for those 40 long years. While they were there, the Lord instructed Moses uh, and Aaron to uh, build a tabernacle, a place of meeting, a place of you know, worship, the Holy of Holies and the altar and the altar of incense and the table of showbread and the uh, candlesticks and all those things. Um, so the, a guy named Bezalel was one of the artisans that was used to fashion this beautiful uh, tabernacle. And I say beautiful, it was kind of beautiful on the inside, but the outside of the tabernacle was fairly plain. It, it was covered in badger skins. And so it really didn't look that impressive on the outside, but you'd walk inside and there were beautiful um, pieces of furniture and gold and vessels and all kinds of stuff that they would do there with the tabernacle. And that, that would be the place of worship even when they conquered the uh, promised land in the land of Canaan. They would bring the tabernacle and eventually set it up at Shiloh. And uh, they would be there and uh, worship the Lord at Shiloh. But uh, eventually King David takes the throne. He was the second king of Israel. Uh, And David being a man after God's own heart, he just said, man, I want to build a temple in in the city of David, which is Jerusalem, and uh, a place to worship God. You know, and he kind of reasoned, I've got a palace, a place to live. We need a place where we can uh, worship God. And so uh, David said, I'm gonna build a a temple. And, And Nathan the prophet, came in and said, that's right, David, go for it, man. Knock yourself out, that's awesome. Well, Nathan goes home that night and the Lord says, Nathan, you spoke too soon. David is not supposed to build the temple. Um, He's a man of war and he's got blood on his hands. He's not the temple builder. So Nathan had to take a little humble pie and go back the next day. Uh, Sorry, David, I spoke too soon, but you can't build the temple. Um, Now, I love what David does here because when you read that story in the Bible, the next chapter, Um, David goes on a military rampage. Is he mad because he can't build the temple? I don't know. I think it's more that David um, just thought, well, I'm gonna do what I'm good at. Um, And you know, David, one of the guys, don't complain about what you can't do, do what you can. So David finds out I can't build the temple. Okay, whatever, I'm gonna go do what I'm really good at, slaying people. And he goes on a rampage. And if you read that next chapter, it's like David slew, David killed, David crushed, David took, David spoiled, David. And it's just, you know, sentence after sentence, David just wiped out this group. And they were all enemies of Israel. They were all evil, uh, God forsaken pagans that David just goes and says, okay, if I can't build the temple, I'm gonna finish cleaning up. And not only does he clean up there, but he also, collects all kinds of gold and silver, and he starts stacking up all the supplies you'd need to build the temple in Jerusalem. He didn't build it, but he got everything you'd need. Um, And he prepped it all ready for his son, Solomon, who would then build the temple when Solomon became the king. And that temple would last from Solomon's era. It was a glorious temple because David got so much gold and silver and fancy brass and all that stuff. They made the temple beautiful and glorious. 
Um, it was one of the most uh, incredible buildings in history. And that temple would be the Jews for hundreds of years. They'd worship God there in the temple. The problem, many of the kings of Jerusalem and of Israel, the Northern tribes, when they split up into civil war, um, the temple sort of was in and out of good times and bad times. And some, some kings even brought in pagan idols into the temple in Jerusalem to worship these pagan deities in the temple of God. And, and that's why God just says, man, this place is defiled this temple in Jerusalem. And eventually he says this temple, through the prophets, he says this temple will be destroyed. And it finally came to pass in 586 BC, the Babylonians led by Nebuchadnezzar comes and crushes Jerusalem, destroys the temple of Solomon, and the sacrifice ceases there, the altar ceases there in 586 BC. Now, when you're talking about temple history, for you guys that like history, and uh, whether you're reading the Bible or watching History Channel, that is marginally accurate, um, uh, but, but they talk about the, the two main temple periods of the, of the city of Jerusalem, and historians sort of refer, well, that's second, second temple period or first temple period. The, the confusing part on that is they're not talking about temples built by so-and-so, that temple, but it's more of when did the sacrifice start and when did the sacrifice end? And in this case, the first temple period, it was the, the time of Solomon's temple, from the time Solomon built it to 586 when the Babylonians crushed it. Well, it sat in ruin there for 70 long years. But if you remember, after the children of Israel spent their 70 years in captivity in Babylon, Artaxerxes gave the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And um, so a small group of people, and I say small, about 50,000 if you follow the Bible's narrative, um, which is a very small group. I mean, there could have been, uh, you know, uh, several hundred thousand going back to Jerusalem. But a lot of the Jews, well, they became kind of happy Babylonians and they didn't wanna go back. But 50,000 of the Jews went back um, and they went under the leadership to repair and restore Jerusalem and the temple and the walls um, led by guys like Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel who? Uh, Zerubbabel. Uh, if you're an expectant mother, maybe that's a good Bible name for you to choose. Zerubbabel, and you can call him Bubba for short. That'd be great. Um, but Zerubbabel actually is an important name for you to know because often the second temple that's, that was built, they often call it Zerubbabel's temple because he was one of the guys. Now, um, if you wanna say it like a Hebrew, it's more like Zerubbabel. That's how you say his name. Uh, but we say Zerubbabel because it's fun. Um, but, uh, but either way, uh, the, the temple was then rebuilt. Now, uh, the temple was rebuilt, but it wasn't as fancy as Solomon's temple, not even close. Um, they built the temple, the wall of Jerusalem uh, under real duress and they didn't have the materials and the supplies. So it was fairly plain, fairly simple, not as big, not as glorious, but it was a temple nonetheless. Zerubbabel's temple made it from that time uh, when the Jews came out of the Babylonian captivity all the way to the time just before Christ. Um, and that temple remained, but uh, during the time just before Jesus came on the scene, a guy by the name of Herod the Great said, I'm gonna sort of chip and Joanna Gaines the temple there in Jerusalem. Um, what, put shiplap in the Holy of Holies? Nope. <laughs> Um, they were just gonna do a massive remodel of the temple. So it wasn't a rebuilding of the temple, but Herod the Great, and, and there's a long reason. Herod had this interesting, weird link to the Jews. We could get into all this stuff, but he, he wanted to sort of make a nice gesture for the Jews. Herod the Great um, 
as bad as he was in so many areas, one of the things he did a lot of is building amazing things. I mean, if you're into architecture and, and building and history, uh, he's the guy who was responsible for building Masada, uh, that, that palace fortress that's out in the middle of the desert of Israel. Um, and it's, it's an amazing, amazing place. I always bring our uh, tours there uh, when we go to Israel, because you got to see Masada. Um, he also built the Herodian. Um, there was a little hill and he says, I want to be able to see Jerusalem from the top of this hill. And they're like, yeah, but we'd have to build this mountain to be like a thousand feet taller than it was before. And he said, exactly. Um, and they did. Jerusalem was 10 miles away. And if you go to the Herodian today, there's this cone shaped hill that's just perfectly shaped that goes up and his palace was on top. And to this very day, you can stand there and look into Jerusalem, 10 miles away. I mean, he did some amazing things. That's where they found his sarcophagus and his bones, by the way. They actually have Herod the Great's sarcophagus and bones from where it was buried in the Herodian. Anyway, it's an amazing story, Herod the Great. But he was trying to sort of gain favor and cause there to be peace with the Jewish people. So he said, hey, let's remodel their temple. And so he took uh, many years and tons of money and remodeled Zerubbabel's temple. Um, so does that bring into the third temple period? No, Zerubbabel's temple is called the simple second temple period because the sacrifice began again right after the Jews were in captivity in Babylon. Zerubbabel and the guys build the temple and sacrifice begins again. That begins the second temple period. And it goes all the way through even after the remodel of the temple. So that's not another temple period. Um, and if you know the story, Jesus would come on the scene and he'd walk in that, the temple of Herod the Great. Um, we'll talk about that tonight. Um, and then he would uh, make a prediction that that temple would be destroyed. Not one stone of it would stand upon another. And so what happened? Well, the Romans and the Jews started to not get along worse and worse. And eventually Titus, the Roman general came in 70 AD and crushed Jerusalem and crushed the temple and destroyed it. Um, the story goes where one of Titus's uh, archers lit a, a fiery arrow and you know, just kind of indiscriminately shot the arrow and it went over the wall into the temple mount, through the doors of the temple and into the temple itself and caught a bunch of the tapestries. You know, here are these, can you imagine hundreds of year old tapestries and stuff? Uh, they were somewhat flammable. They didn't have like uh, OSHA and, and uh, city county permits about uh, combustible materials. They didn't have that back in those days. So they f shot the arrow in there and everything ignited and the temple itself became like this inferno oven and uh, everything burned, yeah, the cedar from Lebanon, all that stuff, it was all melting and burning. And um, it just, all the gold, all the silver melted uh, and went down into the cracks of the stones there on the Temple Mount. I'll tell you more about that in a second. But anyway, um, once that happened in AD 70, um, that would be the end of the second temple period because there was no more sacrifice there. The Jews were driven out by the Romans and then you know, uh, emperors came and went. Hadrian uh, said, if you see two Jews talking in Jerusalem, you have license to kill them. Uh, that was like an edict that came down from Hadrian. And you know, the temple period stopped there. And they haven't had a temple in Jerusalem since then, since, uh, since that second temple period. Um, so you say, okay, Brett, what's the history lesson all about? Well, there, there's many lessons that we get from the temple that I wanna kind of point out and hopefully we can uh, sort of think about that and uh, we'll talk about um, those details and what are the lessons? Well, um, I have first a practical lesson, 
Secondly, a prophetic lesson. And then thirdly, I'm gonna, um, Lord willing, uh, show you a personal uh, lesson that we can glean from the temple periods and the temple lessons. So number one, we've got the practical lesson of the temple. Um, And that is this. Um, Our text tonight, um, Haggai chapter two. Um, What does it say? Let's take a look. Let's read. It says in Haggai chapter two, um, we begin in verse uh, seven. It says, and I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house, that's the temple, with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than that of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Haggai the prophet, what was his time period? Well, remember when Zerubbabel was building the temple? Haggai was on the scene at that time. And he was kind of cracking the whip saying, you guys, let's get this temple done. Sort of a splash of cold water on the Jews. Cause see, they were already building their houses and getting everything all dialed in personally, but they were neglecting getting the temple rebuilt there in Jerusalem. So Haggai, just two chapters, he's gonna sort of crack the whip of let's get her done kind of thing. That's Haggai. Um, but he prophetically says some stuff here that is really quite profound when you know the history and the story. Um, what he claims here is he says, um, the glory of the latter house, that is the, the newer version, the Zerubbabel version, the glory of that house will be greater than that of the former. That's Solomon's temple. And, and so you think, oh, it must be more beautiful, more architecturally pleasing to the eye, more glorious in gold and silver. How is it gonna be better? Well, therein lies an interesting question. How was the latter uh, temple gonna be more glorious and greater um, than the, the former? Well, well, that's where you have to kind of know the rest of the story. And there, there, there's kind of an interesting part of that. Would you keep your finger here in Haggai and turn over to Ezra? chapter three. Uh, Maybe you went through Ezra with us back in, what was it, somewhere in like 2017, I think we were in Ezra. Um, But uh, maybe this will be a refresher course for some of you guys. But but Ezra chapter three, uh, there's a a thing that's going on. Now, this is that time period when they're rebuilding the temple. Uh, Same time period as Haggai, uh, chronologically. Um, And what's going on? Well, they just finished laying the foundation of this new Zerubbabel temple after Solomon's temple's destroyed, after the 70 years of captivity, now uh, these guys are rebuilding the temple and we pick it up in Ezra 3, verse 10. It says in verse 10, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals uh, to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But, verse 12, many of the priests and the Levites and the chief of the fathers who were ancient men, the old guys, that had seen the first house, Solomon's temple, When the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy. 
so that the, no, the, the people could not discern the noise of the shout of the joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard afar off. <laughs> what a strange thing. The foundations built. Now, I know what this is like because um, when I was a kid, one of the ways my parents, you know, uh, got ahead a little financially because, you know, my dad was a hard worker, but he didn't have like a big retirement or anything like that. So he just worked really hard. And one of the things we'd do is we'd build a house, live in a travel trailer, build it, and then sell it, and then go build another house. And he'd do this after work. Um, and he did all the work. I hear people say, yeah, we're building a house. You mean you contracted, a, you know, because to me there's a big difference between you building, swinging the hammer and pulling wire and plumbing and all that stuff. Well, that's what my dad did. He did all that. And we just build houses. And, but I remember um, we'd get the foundation down and maybe the, the floor on. And, and that's when we, we would get out our sleeping bags and we'd sleep out on the, because we had our new house, at least the foundation. We were excited to actually have something other than a travel trailer to sleep on. And so we'd get out early and we'd start cooking in the house before there was even sheetrock. And like, it was really kind of a funny thing. I, I kind of sense that's what they're doing. The foundation is laid. So everybody, hey, get the priests, get their duds on, man. Their fancy priestly garments and let's sing songs. And we're gonna just use the foundation to worship God. And the young people are just rejoicing, being thankful to the Lord. But there's the old guys going, <laughs> why are they crying? What's wrong? They said, oh, you guys don't know what you're missing. The, the, the former glory of the Solomon's temple, this, even this foundation is like garbage compared to what Solomon had. And they're weeping because it's just not as good. My kids told me on our vacation, dad, there's a new phrase you need to know. And I'm like, what's that? Don't yuck my yum. Have you heard don't yuck my yum? That's something I've never heard of until just a few weeks ago. Um, but as it turns out, I thought, you know, that's a pretty good phrase. Have you ever had somebody, oh man, I had a hamburger at a hamburger joint there in Lake Oswego. And somebody's like, yeah, whatever. I know a better hamburger joint than that. And it's over in Clackamas. And you're like, don't yuck my yum, man. I was telling you, like there's people that just love to yuck the yum. Well, that's these, these old dudes, man. They're like, oh brother, this temple's garbage compared to the Solomon's temple. Uh, are you a yuck my yum kind of person? Uh, I hope you're not. Don't yuck my yum. And, and that's what these old guys are kind of doing. Yeah, but Brett, what if these old dudes have a point? Maybe it's true that the Zerubbabel's temple was less attractive and not as impressive. Well, as it turns out, they're right about that. The situation was very different, but these old guys, and, and so there's this very mixed feeling at the celebration. There's people rejoicing, oh, thank you, Lord, we got our temple foundation. And then there's other guys going, oh, it's not like the good old days. Um, be careful if, if you're like me and you're getting in the older crowd, you know, where you're starting to remember the good old days. Back when I was a youngster, we used to do it this way. And, and, and the kids are like, oh brother, not the when I was a kid, you know, that thing, you know, it's like, we used to listen to good music and stuff like that, you know, like, don't yuck my yum. Uh, the, the, the older people, we do that sometimes. We gotta be careful about that. Um, now there is some truth to some of those things, by the way, and I'm not knocking older people. There's places in the Bible where the young people should have been listening to the older people and they didn't and they got killed uh, for it. So just heads up, there's, there's some wisdom in those old timers too. Um, but when it's an old timer saying, oh, it's not like the good old days, that's what's happening here with the temple, the new temple. And so there's a practical lesson, you know, that kind of has to do a little bit with the clash of age and youth. Um, I, I remember seeing this uh, in the church over the years. I've been a church person since I was but a baby. I've got a lot of years of church and stuff. And I remember when I was a little kid, 
Um, we'd travel around, my dad would work in construction. We'd move from town to town when he'd build a, a dam or a bridge somewhere. And you know, we lived in Yakima and Brookings and all these different places moving around. But wherever we went, we went to church on Sunday and we'd go to different churches. So I remember, you know, we'd go to a lot of these old Baptist churches in the middle of town. And I remember singing, you know, the old hymns with all the old timers, you know, there at the Baptist church. And as a little kid, I remember kind of liking the hymns. I remember liking to read and try to figure out which stanzas they're gonna omit and why. Remember the pastors were always like, well, sing stanza one and four. And I'm like, what about two and three? <laughs> like, would the author be okay with you leaving out two of his verses? Like, I, I used to be that kind of a kid, I guess. But I was like six, seven years old when I was doing that. But I'll never forget when I turned 10, we had this young pastor start a church locally where we lived. Um, and uh, it was during the Jesus movement of the 1960s and 70s. And they weren't singing the hymns, they were singing what they called praise music. That was a new thing. And I remember thinking, wow, this is different than those old hymns. And, and, and I remember liking the praise music as a, little, as a young kid. And I remember my parents would play on the record player, uh, you know, praise music at home. And, and we'd listen to it all week long. And, and a lot of it was scripture, like right out of the Bible scriptures. And, but they would sing the same phrase over and over again. And it was kind of hippie music, sort of. Maybe some of you guys remember Love Song, Parable, Mustard Seed Faith. I listened to all that stuff when I was a kid. And I remember thinking, oh, this is awesome. It was cool. But I also remember there was a bunch of old timers. That's not real music. Praise music is from the devil. Why is it from the devil? Because there's drums. And everyone knows the drums are the devil's instrument. And I'm here to tell you, no, it's the bass guitar. No, I'm just, just kidding. No, <laughs> uh, no, uh, it's, it's a funny thing. There was arguments where unless you're singing the hymns, you're not singing God music. And I, and I heard a bunch of old timers say that for years and years. Um, but you know, I remember one discussion I had, by the way, with an old timer is like, the hymns are better than the praise song. And I said, well, let's break this down. And we actually had a conversation. I said, I love hymns, but which one's better? And I, and I showed him one of our praise songs and he said, yep, hymns are better. And I said, well, do you know where these lyrics from this song come from? He said, no. And I said, it comes straight from the Bible, word for word. Which one's better, the Bible or your hymn? And he was hesitant, but he said, the hymn. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, so you think your hymn, uh, you know, by Martin Luther or by, you know, all these people uh, is better than the Bible. Okay, I gotcha. I understand your worldview. Um, and so I was just making a point. Now I'm not against the hymns and, I, and, and at Ethan Creek, I remember we were doing praise music back in the old days like we do now, but, but we were also starting to implement more hymns and you know, doing some hymns because we like hymns too. Um, and, uh, and it's so funny because now that generation that was doing the 60s um, you know, praise music, now they're, they're like weeping. They're like, oh, we miss the old praise music from the 60s, the old Calvary Chapel days. You guys are doing all this newfangled music and bringing these hymns into church. And it's like, man, it's just a cycle. It's like, it's like pendulum back and forth. Uh, the fads and the fancies, and it's not real Christian music. Uh, be careful. Um, we can talk about what people wear, music styles, uh, whether you have a pulpit or stools. Um, everybody's got these things, you know, that they get all up into and, and they say, well, it's just not as good as this or that. Um, this is a funny dilemma that the Bible shows. The old guys are like, this, this foundation is nothing compared to the good old Solomon's day. You might say, okay, Brett, so the, which, which group was correct? Um, which group actually uh, gets it right? Was it the old guys 
or was it the, uh, you know, the new kids that were excited? Well, the answer, in this case, the young people were correct. The old guys were wrong. Well, how do you know that? Haggai. Do you remember what we just read? We read in Haggai. Go back to Haggai with me. Um, and what we read there is Haggai says, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former, saith the Lord of hosts. This is the Lord of hosts who says this. Um, by the way, the Lord of hosts, Haggai uses that term over and over again in this passage. Um, this is an important phrase. It's one of the, the sort of the titles of God. He's the Lord of armies. Don't forget that the Bible says the Lord is a warrior. He is mighty in battle. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it's interesting that Haggai kind of, in talking about the temple, he keeps saying the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. There's a reason for that. We'll look at on Wednesday night. But who was correct? The glory of the, the newly built temple foundation by Zerubbabel or the, the, the temple of Solomon? Which one would be greater? Haggai says the glory of the, of the latter will be better than that of the former. In other words, Zerubbabel's temple would be better. So the, the, as it turns out, the young guys were right to be thankful and worshiping the Lord. And the old guys should have kind of got off their, their, their traditional bandwagon and realized, wow, God's doing something different. And it doesn't look like what we used to do or it doesn't feel the same or it doesn't seem exactly the same. And by the way, that happens throughout our lives. And there's times we have to be careful. It's a little tricky, I gotta admit, because there's some things we need to hang on to and not let them go, of course. But there's other things that are non, not non-essential issues that we hang on to and act like, well, it's not a real church unless it has a cross somewhere on it. I've heard that about Athey Creek. Um, I probably would have put a cross somewhere on this building somewhere um, had I not been told so many times, where's your cross? You're not a real church unless you've been a cross. I'm like, oh yeah, watch me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, just, just tell me something I have to do that the Bible says nothing about. Uh, that's why we don't have a cross anywhere. We might some, someday, who knows? Um, uh, there's enough of them on the church across the street uh, to match for all of us, that's great. Uh, I'm happy about that. I love seeing those crosses as I drive by the rolling hills, it's great. Um, and I commend that. But, um, but it's funny how we, we sort of put things, you have to have this or you, you don't, you shouldn't do that. Be careful on that stuff. These old guys were wrong. Um, Haggai says the glory of this new temple is gonna be better than that of the old. So um, we learn a little bit of a lesson about sometimes we have to bend and be uh, willing to accept that things change and stuff like that. There's a second lesson though that I'd like to look at and that is not just a, you know, a, um, a practical lesson but also a prophetic lesson here. Um, this foundation was sort of rejected by the older guys. Does that ring a bell? The old guys rejecting the foundation of the temple, the building stones, the foundation's made by stones and the, the builders rejecting the foundation. Does that ring a bell? Well, yeah, it should. If you're a Bible student, at least, the, you know, Psalmist, Psalm 118, remember what it says? The stone which the builders refused or rejected is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Um, this is an interesting thing that the Bible talks about throughout the whole Bible. Um, this chief cornerstone that would be rejected in the building of the temple. Um, and then Paul the apostle and the guys, they jump on the same bandwagon. In fact, Luke writes about it um, in the story of Acts chapter four. Remember, these guys healed the guy in Acts four and uh, they said, stop doing things in the name of Jesus. And you know, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders were ticked off at Peter, James, and John. Well, Peter stands up there in Acts four, verse 10, and he says this. 
He says, be it known unto you all and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Now verse 11. This is the stone which was set at naught or set on the outside, to, like in the garbage, um, set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Peter tells us not what the stone is, but who the stone of, of you know, Psalm uh, 118, 22 and 23. Um, he tells us who the stone is. It's Jesus the Messiah who they rejected, just like the prophecy said, they'll reject the chief corner. Now, if you're a brick mason, one of the things you know, brick laying 101, is whatever your first brick is that you're gonna lay, you better make sure it's square and it's straight and it's a solid good beginning because the rest of the wall will be dictated by that stone. The cornerstone is kind of the important one. Um, and, uh, and that's kind of the point. I love how the Bible uses these analogies that are still true throughout all these millennial ages. You know, you still kind of need to set a stone that's, that's correct. And, and there's only one righteous stone that's correct, perfect, and that's Jesus. And so, so here's, you know, um, Peter saying, you know, you guys rejected Jesus. This is the stone which was set aside or, you know, thrown away by you builders. Who are the builders? The Jewish rabbis and Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and Sadducees and all those guys. They had rejected the stone, just like the old dudes rejected there in Ezra three, they rejected the foundation of the temple. You see the correlation here. Um, there's a prophecy about the chief cornerstone of the temple that would be rejected. And, and Peter uh, articulates and makes this connection. Now, the thing is, the old men were still weeping during Peter's time, going, oh, this is, you know, Jesus is not. They, they saw Jesus come down and they said, we will not have this man rule over us. Um, and they rejected Jesus, the, the cornerstone. So if you go back to our text here, you know, in Haggai chapter two, interesting, it says the glory of this latter house shall be greater than uh, the, the former. Um, now, the, the one thing we haven't really asked or talked about is um, why would the, the Zerubbabel temple period, the second temple period, why would that temple be greater than the former? Because you know, Solomon had more gold, more architecture, everything was bigger, more beautiful. Um, technically, you might say the old dudes were right there in Ezra 3, but we know who they weren't because Haggai the prophet said, no, he said, the glory of this latter house shall be greater. Why was it greater? Well, that's where you gotta turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Flip over there, keep your finger in Haggai. I know I've got you bouncing around here a little bit, but there's a story that kind of weaves throughout the Bible here that we're following. It's Matthew chapter 21. We'll pick it up in verse six. It says in Matthew 21, six, and the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them and brought the ass and the colt and put on them their clothes and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Um, now, um, 
by the way, does anybody know where that scripture comes from? Hosanna in the highest? Well, if you look at your margin reference Bible, you can cheat. Does your margin reference, where does that scripture come? They're quoting a Psalm when they're saying, Hosanna in the highest, blesses you, comes in the name of the Lord. What? Psalm 118, does anyone remember what, what else is in Psalm 118? We just read it about the chief cornerstone being rejected. Same chapter, same thing that they would quote on this day as Jesus was riding in Jerusalem. Are you guys with me? Same chapter, that's important. So they're, they're singing out this and all that. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, Brett, you're just trying to tack on Palm Sunday to your Haggai situation. Uh, you're just doing it, trying to twist scripture. And you said it, if you try to put a twist on scripture, you end up with twisted scripture. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Let me show you why. Question, why was Haggai saying that the, the Zerubbabel temple would be more glorious, greater glory than the first? It's because it's fulfillment of that prophecy is right here in Matthew 21. How so? So they're saying as Jesus is riding down on the colt, where's he riding to? Where's he going? He's going down the Palm Sunday road, up the Kidron Valley, into the temple. He's entering into the temple of Jerusalem. Whose temple? Zerubbabel's temple that had been remodeled by Herod the Great. Are you guys still with me here? And Jesus is about to enter that temple. Um, what makes you know, Zerubbabel's temple more glorious than Solomon's, the answer? Jesus, right. Um, can you imagine, like we, we are so familiar with Jesus and all like, oh, Jesus went in the temple. No, God with us, Emmanuel came to this world. And eventually this is like better than David entering the temple, better than even the old, remember when it says the glory of the Lord filled the temple. What was that like in Solomon's day? Well, that's smoke and, and the kabod. That is the weighty, tangible presence you could sense with God over the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy Holy. Like, that's pretty cool. You're like, yeah, I wish I could see that. But do you understand? That even pales in comparison to what's about to happen here in Matthew 21. The reason, the Ark of the Covenant and the shiny kabod that was over the Ark, that's just like a shadow of the fact that Jesus would eventually step foot God will step in foot into the temple. And we just kind of read this, oh, Jesus went to the temple. No, this is a huge event. This is why Haggai said, the other temple, nothing compared to this one because the glory of the Lord is gonna fill the temple like no other time in the world's history. And that's being fulfilled right here. Let's keep reading. So it says, um, you know, they, they cried out Hosanna and sang Psalm 118, verse 10. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? Now this cracks me up. Um, Cause there's a bunch of people going, Hosanna, save now, blessed is you come. They, some, there's a small group that thinks, wow, this is the Messiah. But most of the city is coming out, what's going on? Like there's kind of a mixed response here. Uh, who is this? And the multitude, verse 11 said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee, which is wrong by the way. They're, they're thinking they know what they're talking about. Jesus is so much more than just a prophet, wouldn't you agree? Um, he did move in a way of prophecy, but he was not a prophet, he was God. But they, they get that wrong, but we'll give them credit. Verse 12, and Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer but you have made it into a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple 
and he healed them. Well, this is what happens when you bring the glory of the Lord in the temple. Blind people and lame, crippled people are suddenly seeing and walking. Verse 15, and when the chief priests and the scribes saw it, the wonderful things that it did, do you think they're happy? Jesus healing blind people and sick people and lame people? No. When they saw it and saw the wonderful things that he did in the temple um, and the children crying in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased and said unto him, hearest thou what these say? And Jesus said to them, yea, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hath perfected praise? In other words, what these guys are praising, saying Hosanna, they're the right ones. Isn't it interesting? The same response of Ezra chapter three, where the old guys were like, oh, this is, this is not as good as we wanted it to be, like Solomon's day. Same thing happens, it's a mixed response. There's a bunch of young people saying, Hosanna, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Other people are like, who's this guy? And then the religious leader's like, wow, this is, this is displeasing to us. We are not happy. Um, it's kind of a similar response as those of Ezra 3. And these are the ones, and this is where they reject the cornerstone of the, of the temple, if you would, right here, as they're displeased. You know, if you keep reading Holy Week in the book of Matthew, you know, chapter 21, Jesus then starts telling some parables and doing some stuff there in the temple, but it ultimately gets, you know, to Matthew 24, where he starts talking about the end of the world. And we'll talk about that in a second. But all that to say, interesting, Palm Sunday, there's so much to this story. Um, one of the things um, that you should kind of recognize about this, by the way, is Jesus calls a certain place, my house. Um, and for Jesus to say it, that, you know, um, he said, this, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer. And you've made it, my house, a den of thieves. Question, quiz time, does anybody know where were the changers of money sitting? in the court of the Gentiles. You see, the reason that we miss this is we don't know much about this as Gentiles in Portland, but if you go to Jerusalem even to this day, um, this would have been a shocking thing for Jesus to say because he's basically calling the court of the Gentiles part of the house of, the, of God. The Gentiles did not believe that at all. They believed the court of the Gentiles was outside of the house of God. There was a big wall and a fence that separated Gentiles so, so that they could never set foot in the temple of God. But Jesus said, this is my house where you guys are sitting in the court of the Gentiles. That would have been a life-changing, shocking thing for Jesus to say. And this is another reason why these guys were displeased. Now, before I go on with this, let me, let me show you. Um, this is a, all this stuff is a place I take our tour group when we go to Israel. Um, a few years back, Micah and me and a couple other guys, we were shooting video here. This is video we shot from uh, the Mount of Olives, looking down on the Temple Mount, that Dome of the Rock shrine there, and then that's the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and there's the East Gate. And you, you come down, this is, this is the beginning of Palm Sunday Road, right here in this video. And we start walking on this little pathway down the very, this is where Jesus rode the little colt down this road of Palm Sunday Road. And um, it's really kind of a, a fun little journey. It's a short trip as you walk down the one side of the Kidron Valley, and then you come up to the other side, and then you go behind that ancient wall there and you end up on the Temple Mount. And that's the, that's the journey Jesus took on Palm Sunday, right where we're walking there. They call it the Palm Sunday Road. There's uh, hundreds of thousands of tombs that the Jews have purchased there that face toward Jerusalem. That's a whole nother story. But as we're walking down this little Palm Sunday Road, 
Um, it, it just hits home. You're like, wow, this really did happen. Like this was a thing that Jesus did do um, as he was going into Jerusalem and, and what have you. Um, now, uh, there's my wonderful wife, Debbie. She's, uh, she's gonna say hi to y'all right there um, as we were walking through the Palm Sunday Road. But, um, but the thing is, along this way, this is where Jesus spent a lot of time, by the way. In fact, the Garden of Gethsemane is right here, um, about you know three quarters of the way down the Palm Sunday Road. Um, and I take our group inside the walls of the Garden of Gethsemane and we do a little worship and prayer and communion there in the garden where Jesus uh, sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. The olive trees there, are some of them are over uh, 1,500 years old, these olive trees there. But you can grab olives off these trees and if you squeeze them, a blood red oil comes out of them. Like it looks just like blood. It's kind of amazing. Um, and it's just picturesque there as you're kind of worshiping Jesus uh, there in the garden of Gethsemane. But as you um, continue down that road, it eventually leads you right up into Jerusalem and to the Temple Mount where Jesus uh, would go through the gates of Jerusalem and then go up onto the Temple Mount. This is what happened. Now, I mentioned he went, the first place he went was the court of the Gentiles. The Jews didn't even consider that the temple. But Jesus called it my father's house. And this is interesting. Uh, Micah and I were in the Israel Museum uh, after our group left. We did a bunch of shooting of different things. The Israel Museum was an amazing place. But this stone sits there in the Israel Museum. And um, the reason we shot a bunch of pictures of this is this is an amazing stone they found. It was one of the signs, placards, that was put on the fence around the temple in Jerusalem on the other side of the, so the court of the Gentiles, the Gentiles could walk in, but once you came to this sign, you wouldn't pass because this sign, I'll read it to you what it says um, in ancient language. It says, no foreigner may enter these walls which surround the sanctuary. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That's the way the Jews looked at it. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to go into the you know, temple area, if you crossed that line, they would kill you on the spot. That, that was, was that the heart of the Lord for his temple? And that's why Jesus saying, don't make my father's house, including the court of the Gentiles, a place of merchandise. He was opening it up, uh, you know, which, which we know God had a plan to save not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. Jesus would go on in different times and places. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus made this statement. He said, in this place, the temple, um, there is one greater than the temple. Do you know the Jews? They believe there was nothing greater than the temple. If you're gonna, you know, remember when you were a kid and you said, I swear, and they say, swear to God. Why would you do that? Now, my parents forbade us to do that. You don't swear to God. Um, but I remember my friends, swear to God. Hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Like, why would you say something like that? Because you wanted them to, there's nothing greater you could swear on than having, you know, swearing to God and have a needle stuck in your eyeball. Um, but you say, bro, what does that have to do with anything? Well, the Jews during the time of Christ would swear by the temple. That was, they didn't say swear to God. They said, we swear by the temple in Jerusalem. And that meant, you, you know, you, like you just would not lie if you're swearing, swearing on the greatest thing in the world. But Jesus comes along and says, in this place, there's one greater than the temple. They would have said, ah! They would have freaked out, short-circuited because there's nothing greater than the temple. But as it turns out, you and I know, retrospectively, that Jesus is by far greater than the temple. 
Um, so, so the story goes on, um, and, you know, after Jesus cleans the temple, tells a bunch of parables there at the temple. But in Matthew 24, and this is the passage we all know as Bible prophecy and the end of the world and red letters for several pages. How did that whole discussion start? Matthew 24, verse one, Jesus went out, departed from the temple, and the, his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Um, now this cracks me up. Because you, know, you gotta remember the disciples are all excited because the temple has been newly remodeled by Herod the Great. And there's all these buildings and it was glorious. And the disciples like, Jesus, we haven't looked at all the temple. We need to show you the glory of this new building and the temple. You're gonna be really impressed. That's the idea. They were excited to show Jesus the temple and the buildings. But listen to Jesus, verse two. And Jesus said unto them, see ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. What? This brand new temple of Herod is gonna be torn apart and not one of the stones on another? What are you talking about? It's almost like the disciples thought, yeah, okay, whatever, let's move on. And they didn't really talk anymore about that. Except for they, you can almost hear the disciples thinking here. They're thinking, oh, this must be the end of the world that Jesus, when the end of the world comes, that's when the temple will be destroyed. That's what they're thinking. So they, they then, right after this, verse three, they say, when is the end of the world? Tell us about the signs and the ends of the world. And Jesus said, okay, here we go. And you know the rest of that. Jesus said, in the end, last days, there'll be wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes in diverse places, um, you know, nation will rise against nation, uh, all that stuff. And he goes on and tells the Olivet Discourse, which is amazing. You say, okay, Brett, what's your point? My point is this. Jesus seems to sort of minimize the importance or even maybe the value of this temple. Um, it's like the disciple, oh, but Jesus, you gotta see the Herod's temple, it's amazing. And he's like, meh. Not one of these stones are gonna be left on another. It's gonna be torn down. And they're like, what do we do with that? It must be talking about the end of the world. So tell us about the end of the world. That's the way that conversation went. Little did they know it'd only be a few decades later where Jesus's words would come to pass perfectly. Um, what did Jesus say? He said, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. By the way, you know, if anybody came to destroy the temple of Herod the Great, usually one or two stones would be laced left behind, right? On top of another. Why would every stone, like that's even hard to imagine. How could Jesus make such a prophecy? Well, that's exactly what happened. Do you remember when I told you about the AD 70 invasion and the, the indiscriminate arrow that was fired through the door of the temple? By, remember that story? When I told you that all the gold and silver melted into the cracks of the rocks, Titus, the general, said after the war was over and the Jews killed, they killed tens of thousands of Jews. Then he ordered his soldiers to pull every stone of the temple apart to get all the gold and silver that had melted into all the cracks. Now, if you go to Jerusalem today, I will take you and show you these stones where they sit this very moment. You see, this is the Western wall right here. Um, not the Wailing Wall, that's just a, a several hundred yards um, away from this on the other side of that rock wall there. But these stones that are laying here, these are the stones of Herod the Great's temple. And what did the Romans do? They picked, they got all the soldiers, they picked up all these huge stones and threw them over the wall onto this, what is called the, the Romans road, the Cardo of Jerusalem. And, um, and, there, and you can go and see these very stones that lay there from when the Romans did this in 1870. It's an amazing thing. And not one of those stones stayed upon another. And the Romans got what would be today billions and billions of dollars worth of gold 
that had melted into the cracks. Jesus knew what he was talking about. You say, okay, Brett, you give me a headache. Uh, that's a lot of information. Well, first of all, we have the practical lesson that um, sometimes, you know, the older guys don't know what's right, the younger guys are right, and sometimes, you know, you know the Lord does different things in different times. We have a prophetic lesson that Jesus would be the stone that the builders rejected, but Jesus would also be the one who would save the world from its sins, and, and Jesus would be the fulfillment of Haggai chapter two, verse nine, prophetically, that the glory of this latter house will be greater than the former. Why? Because Jesus is the one who went in there. Um, this is just radical, amazing uh, truth. But then finally, before we pack it up, there's also a personal lesson I'd like to show you, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, thirdly, the personal lesson. Question, what gave the temple the most value? Good, Jesus, you're always right when you say that. Jesus is what made the second temple more glorious than the first. It wasn't the gold, it wasn't the silver, it wasn't its architecture, it was the fact that God and his glory in his fullness walked into the temple. That's what made that temple greater than the first. Um, and there's a personal application of that because you know what? We live in a culture that people, it's all about themselves, their legacy, being an influencer, um, having an effect on people and being an important person or respected or blah, 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 fill in the gap. What makes a person valuable? Jesus. <laughs> yep. Um, this is where Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 6. Verses 19 and 20. What, he says, shockingly, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. God has your body and he wants to dwell in you. Your body is a temple to the Holy Spirit. Well, I'd rather have it be a temple to Jesus. It's the same, remember, Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's all the same God. And the Lord, his spirit wants to fill your temple. What makes your temple valuable? You know, it's amazing. What were we made of there in the Garden of Eden? Anybody? Dirt. Um, we are but dust, the Bible says. And what is dust when it gets wet? Mud. When it gets stuck on itself. I think that's the problem with humanity. We get stuck on ourselves. And all we are is mugs of mud, jars of clay. In fact, I'm reminded on this body being a temple and the only thing that makes your temple valuable is if the Holy Spirit's in it. Well, check this out. He doesn't talk about the temple in this, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That's your body. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. Always, listen, this is important, verse 10, always bearing about the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest or made known in our body. What makes your temple valuable or, or worth anything? It's Christ in you. That's the thing that makes a person legit. It's not your financial portfolio. It's not your being in physically top shape. 
It's not being smarter than everybody else or, you're, or you know, um, being an influencer because you have 150,000 Instagram followers. Um, none of that really matters. What really matters is do you have something in your vessel that gives you value? And the only thing that gives the human spirit, the human body real value is Christ in you. That's what the Bible teaches. We have the, the excellency of the power of God in us as we believe in and worship Jesus. It's Christ in you, your temple, that makes your temple great, period. Um, and his glory will fill our temples. Well, how do we get that to happen? I love how simple it is. All you gotta do is ask, ask and you shall receive. That is, Lord, would you fill my life? I remember um, I was listening to a Bible teacher on the radio and he made this you know, highfalutin sort of um, argument. You know, this thing that we tell children is wrong, that they're asking Jesus to come into their hearts. That's not a biblical theme. And he made this whole case about how we're telling kids lies by saying, asking Jesus into your heart. And I'm like, oh, that's so short-sighted. Because if you do a real study of the Bible, the Bible does talk about your heart. And it's not your, your uh, right atrium and your left ventricle and your aorta. That's not what we're talking about. When the Bible employs the word heart, um, the Hebrew word is lev in the Hebrew. Um, and, and also the Greek word is your psyche that's used in the New Testament. It's, when we use the word heart, the, like the Bible uses it, it's talking about the inner person, the inner person that's the soul of man. And, and so when a person accepts Christ, according to all these other passages that talk about the, uh, the Christian, it's Christ in you that's your hope of glory. It's, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, in our soul, in our mind, in our hearts. So it is accurate to say to a little child, ask that Jesus come into your heart because that's exactly what he does. He, he dwells in our temples. And if you're talking about your biological heart, well, yeah, you can make that argument, but the Bible uses that term in the, especially in the Old Testament, uh, speaking of your heart as the inner part of you that feels and thinks, and that's what you and I need. That's what makes you and I worth any value at all is the idea that Jesus fills our lives. Um, you don't have Christ in you if you're not a Christian. If you've not just simply repented of your sins. You know, sin, unconfessed, undealt with sin, God cannot coexist with sinfulness. Light doesn't dwell with darkness. There's no fellowship with darkness and light. But when you confess your sins and say, Lord, forgive me, I have sinned against you. Then the Lord says, oh, I can, I can fix that. And he takes our sins and, and he puts them up on the cross. When he died on the cross, he bore our sins for us. So he forgives you of your sin and then he fills your life with his light and his love. And we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power of God will be not of us, but will be in us. Um, that's what being a Christian is, to accept that you're a sinner, repent, and then say, Lord, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, that you rose from the grave, and that I'm forgiven. And because of that, you're gonna use my body as a temple. So you might even say the third temple period of history, whether people wanna admit this or not, we're living in that time right now. And it's not a temple in Jerusalem, it's the temple of you, his church. By the way, you can make a big argument about not only you personally as your body, but also the whole body of Christ. The Bible talks about that in the New Testament, that it's a new kind of temple that the church is. And uh, we could get into a whole thing about, we don't have time for that tonight. But I hope you see, there's just a practical lesson here that um, is so awesome. There's a prophetic lesson, the rejected cornerstone and the 
uglier temple actually becomes the more glorious, not because of the temple itself, but because of Christ in that temple that made it glorious. The prophetic thing is awesome. Um, but then the practical personal les lesson for us is that we need Christ in us. That's the only thing that gives you value, whether you wanna admit it or not. You might think you're an important person apart from Christ, but when you die, all of that goes away. The only thing that matters after you die is, did you have Christ in you? Because that's what gives value to your life. Lord, how we pray that you would help us to see this wonderful illustration. Lord, we were amazed Palm Sunday being the very moment when Haggai's prophecy would be fulfilled, where the glory of Zerubbabel's temple would reach its peak because the Messiah walking right into that temple. Um, Lord, I pray that we would have our temples filled with your glory because that's the only good um, thing that we can really offer. Um, apart from your son, Christ, we have nothing. Um, without him, we can do nothing. Apart from him, we can be nothing but sinners. But because of the work of the cross, we can have our sins forgiven and the hope of heaven. Lord, we thank you for that. Help us to live our lives and let our bodies be a place where you're able to dwell. Help us to keep sin away from us so that um, you would just be at home in our temples, Lord. So bless this, your church, on this Palm Sunday Eve. We thank you for your word once again, Lord. We're blessed by your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.